Ah, the new normal. You remember that phrase? The new normal? Once the pandemic hit, and we realized that the two-week lockdown was going to be a longer ordeal, we were all trying to figure out how to live a normal life under new circumstances, weren't we? An event had taken place that radically changed reality, or at least reality as we knew it. And life was full of these events. Marriage drastically changed reality as I knew it as a single bachelor. I couldn't do whatever I wanted anymore, whenever I wanted to do it. Children, having children, being a parent does this as well. A couple might enjoy a late night out with friends. Or they might take, uh, take a trip wherever they want to, as long as their wallet allows them to do it. But once a baby enters into the picture, right, everything changes. It's a new reality. We find that we can no longer stay out as late as we'd like and spend as much time with our friends as we used to or even stand within six feet of one another. And I bring this up because our Romans text today speaks of such an event, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it has so completely altered reality that it demands a new normal, a new way of relating to the world and to others. But the events of the life of Christ are not just events that happen to him alone, but in a fascinating way, they are events that have happened to us as well. St. Paul speaks of our baptism as a participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have undergone a real death. As we'll see, it is a real death unto sin. Well, this evening, we continue our series in the book of Romans in order to know what we mean when we talk about the gospel. St. Paul has spent the last several chapters explaining that Jew and Gentile alike are under God's judgment. The good news is that we can be justified before a holy God, not by making up for our transgressions, but by faith. That is the point of chapter 3. And just as Abraham was counted righteous before God, so are all who have faith in him, which was his point in chapter 4. We're told in chapter 5 that because we are justified by faith, we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And that God has given us his spirit who guarantees our salvation. Last week, we saw that the free gift of grace is much greater than the mountain of sin humanity has amassed. We didn't get there in chapter 5, but verses 20 and 21, St. Paul sums up that whole chapter by saying this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is Paul's 
uh, startling summary of that chapter, which leads us to our verse 1 of chapter 6 today. It's there in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, but verses 1 and 2 say, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, Paul is anticipating the logical conclusion of the last verse of chapter 5. And the reasoning goes something like this. Human beings are great at sinning. God's grace is greater than our sin. When we sin, God's grace abounds. The logical conclusion is that we should keep transgressing so that God's grace increases all the more. This is absolutely correct. Or it would be if it weren't for one tiny detail. That detail is that we have died to sin. So what in the world does this mean? How does one die to something? Either you die or you don't die, right? You can't die to something, can you? Well, this is the question that Paul spends the rest of our passage answering. Let's look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Now, from the outset, I have to say that uh, chapter 6 is not about baptism. Not per se. Keep in mind that chapter 5 was about the death and life. We were all dead in Adam, Paul said, and, a made, and then a made alive in the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the good news. But what chapter six is, uh, but while chapter six is not about baptism per se, St. Paul helps us understand the significance of baptism, which constitutes a whole new reality that he desperately wants us to understand. And he first says that we are baptized into Christ's death. Last week, I mentioned uh, the doctrine of the two captains, if you were here, the captain, uh, one captain being Adam, the other being Jesus. And it said that to some extent, what could be said of Adam could also be said of all those he represents, namely that we have a proclivity to disobey God. That's what it means to be born into Adam. Likewise, what can be said of Christ as the new or the second Adam could also be said of those he represents. Just as Christ is righteous, so are all those in him. A few weeks ago, we wrestled with how this could be. Is it a legal fiction, as some say? Something that God declares to be the case about Christians, but isn't actually true? We mentioned that God declares us righteous or imputes righteousness to us when we were, in fact, unrighteous. And back in chapter 4, I don't expect you to remember, but Paul said that God justifies the ungodly. So we know there's a tension here, right, between our apparent unrighteousness 
and the righteousness that is imputed to our account. And here in chapter 6, we see how this tension is finally resolved. We are baptized into Jesus Christ. And this is that new reality that I want us to focus on. Uh, The other day I was chatting with a friend of mine. He and I uh, were single at the same time many years ago. And we were both sort of chatting and, and laughing about how intensely we wanted to be married. We were so lonely. We wanted to be married so bad. Um, well, here we are, and we were sitting there talking about, wasn't that wonderful? <laughs> Didn't we have all this wonderful freedom? Couldn't we? Wow, it was, it was really great, actually. We had no idea what we wanted and what we had. And he made that observation that the grass is always greener on the other side. But then he said something that I, will compl- that I completely agree with and will never forget. He said, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. The fact is, we can never go back. My friend and I, for us, marriage has changed us both completely. We can never not know what it means to be married, and nor do we want to. This is true for everyone who has been baptized into Jesus Christ. What occurs in baptism is an actual death. To be sure, this is Christ's death, but it occurs to us. In baptism, we are united to Jesus. That is to say that his death counts as ours. And if this is the case, then his resurrection also counts as ours, which is why he says in verses 4 and 5, we are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this is where that tension between the justification of the ungodly humanity is resolved. To be united to Christ is to also be united to his righteousness, something that we do not have access to apart from him. And this is the new normal. This is the new reality that completely alters the way that you and I live and move and have our being. This this reality results in what Paul calls newness of life. So what does he mean? We'll look at the next couple of verses. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So here Paul talks about the old self which was crucified with Christ. Now, we could get into the theological weeds here, but let's just think about the old self as the self who was ruled by sin. What do I mean? Well, let's conduct a little thought experiment here. 
Pick a sin, any sin. Think of one of those sins, your maybe top two or three sins in your life. These are those sins that never seem to go away, that we're always sort of struggling with, those besetting sins. You might even say they are your favorite sins. Now, I realize that we're all weak, and some of those sins we might not be able to point to and say, I've had victory over this at least once in my life. I, I realize that. This is, not what I'm, I, this is not what I'm concerned with at the moment. What I want to ask you is this. Do you have a reason to resist it? Do you have a reason to resist it? Notice that I didn't say, have you ever resisted it? I just ask if you have a reason to resist it. So let's assume that there's no direct harm that this sin will cause to anyone. So I'm asking you, why in the world would you resist it? The self that is enslaved to sin cannot answer that question. If you are enslaved to sin, you're looking around at all the crazy Christians wondering why in the world they are seeking celibacy or fidelity or honesty or sobriety and on and on it goes. In other words, you're doing what is natural for those who are in Adam. But on the other hand, if the resistance to sin is a possibility... It is only because the old self has been crucified with Christ. The body of sin has been brought to nothing. Now in verse 7, when Paul says that the one who has died has been set free from sin, he isn't saying that those baptized into Christ will never sin again. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the baptized are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin is still a present reality for the Christian. We suffer temptations every single day. And remember that Paul is arguing against the logic that if we increase our sinning, God's grace will abound all the more. So his baptized Christian audience, just like Christians today, he knows, are prone to excuse sin. Again, here's the tension. We have saved sinners. We have righteous sinners. We have justified transgressors. Just because I have been freed from sin does not mean that I won't return to it like a dog returns to his vomit. That comes from Proverbs 26, 11. Paul knows this all too well, which is the whole point of this passage. For us to return to the sin from which we have been freed is like a married person who pretends to never have been married. Or like a parent who has tried to live as if they never had a child. It's like a post-pandemic world pretending that COVID-19 never existed. And Paul's point is that that would be crazy because it ignores the reality that demands a new normal. We can never go back no matter how much we want to. Why? It's because Christ died and rose from the dead. Look at the next verse, chapter, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. As I said last week, Christ's death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, they are done deals. If we have been baptized into him, we not only participate in his death, but we participate in his resurrection as well. This doesn't mean that our earthly lives just continue on forever and ever, but that our resurrection is guaranteed. And if this is the case, if death no longer has dominion over him, it, never, it no longer has dominion over you. If Christ died to sin once for all, then you also have died to sin. If Jesus lives, so do you. Paul's point is that sin has no place for those who are baptized in Christ Jesus. The abundance of grace that is so available to us, the abundance of grace that will always abound over our sin is good news to rejoice in. It's not an opportunity to indulge in what we've already died to. To ask such a question as, should we continue to sin that grace may abound, is to completely miss the point of grace in the first place. And Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed from death into life. And because it happened to Christ, and because he did not keep it to himself, but freely gave it to us, we are to walk in newness of life, not the oldness of death. So you, must, and so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, as Christians, we have been baptized into Christ. We have died to sin. That is, the self who was ruled by sin has been crucified. It's a fact. We are new creations because we have been united to him. I encourage you to spend the next week meditating on chapters 6 and 7 because Paul acknowledges the phenomenon of sin in the life of those who have died to it. Next week, Deacon Kevin will be preaching on that great gospel text, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The news continues to be good. But I'm compelled to remind us all that there is a warning in this passage if we read between the lines. St. Paul would not have to address this question if we weren't all prone to asking it in our own hearts. No matter what sin we may be thinking about, there seems to be some sort of excuse for it out there. And scholars have written books on how your sin is not really sin after all. And some of those authors claim to be Christians and dead to sin themselves. And not only this, but we live in a world that values evil and disobedience to God. And if we're not careful, we will return to our vomit, that which we have died to. 
The good news of this paragraph, though, is that because of what Christ has accomplished in his incarnation, in his death, in his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, we now have a new normal, a new reality that alters how we relate to God, to each other, and to the world. And our struggle with sin in this life cannot change this reality. We seek to repent from our sin, not because God's love depends on it, but because sin is the very thing we died to. Christ has brought us, bought us life on the cross. If you are here this evening and have never been baptized, come talk to me. I would love to start a conversation about how you could walk in the newness of life. For others, I want to let you know that as Anglicans, we have something we call the rite of reconciliation or confession. This is a very brief private service where you can confess your sins and hear God's absolution spoken over you. You can read it in your book of common prayer on page 223 if you have one. But please schedule a time with me because it's a rite that can only be led by a priest. Which is not to say that you can't confess your sins to someone else or that uh, you can't confess your sins to God alone. But it does mean that this particular rite is authorized for priests and it's very powerful. um, And I I highly recommend it. For now, I want to leave you with a reminder that you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. That comes from Galatians 2.20. So therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift, for the good news that your son has died on the cross. Uh, and we have been baptized into that death, that our old self has been crucified. And that you have raised us to new life as you raised your son from the dead. And these are promises that you have guaranteed to us and given us your spirit as a guarantee. So, Lord, I pray that as we go out from this place, help us, help us to continue to strive for what you call good and pure and holy. Make us to resemble your son, to follow in his ways and in his footsteps and to always carry about us the good news of the gospel, that it might be salt in our speech. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.